Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio Broadcasting on the Airwaves on Saga 960 AM every single Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern and on Coastal Carolina Network. Uh, I'm one half of your host, Dialos Oski. I'm feeling good. It's a new, uh, I don't know, it feels like a new time. People have been changing their clocks, changing attitudes, and um, things are looking up. And I'm uh, joined as always by my trusty co-host and colleague, David Clement, uh, over there in Toronto. David, how goes it? Oh, it's going. It's going. Just another busy, busy week. Busy week. Lots going on. Um, not a really funny podcast um, I've been seeing as of late. Um, bits and pieces here and there. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a bit, it's been a fun time. So when you're a podcast player and, um, wow, David, thanks for the, um, the, the great segue there. Um, this program is also available on uh, on podcasts. You can find it there in your normal podcasting app. Uh, also, podcasting 2.0 apps like Fountain or Breeze or Podverse. Uh, so, looking at your podcast player, and I assume David, you're you're a guy who splits his time between the Spotify app and the Apple Podcast app. So, I'm I'm pretty much just exclusively Spotify or YouTube uh, on the computer, oh, okay. depending where I am. Yeah, I used to use the Apple app, and now it's mostly just Spotify. Okay, so looking on Spotify at your podcast, how many you got saved? How many of you, uh, I think it's segment called Follow over there on Spotify? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, probably about five or six. Five or six, I would say. Those are rookie um, numbers. Becoming, yeah, pump, pump those numbers up. Yeah, it's becoming increasingly harder to actually listen to all of these, especially the ones that are going really long form. Because it's like, man, you got to carve out, you got to have a lot of time. Unless, like, maybe if I'm on the bike or if I'm driving for an extended period of time um, alone, <laughs> because um, my uh, my wife might not necessarily be interested in the podcast I'm listening to, uh, nor is the baby for that matter so um yeah i'd say five or six yeah normally i i have a rule if uh, we're driving over an hour um then basically after that one hour i'm allowed to play whatever podcast i want and um they have to suffer through it uh but yeah those are rookie numbers man i've got a i probably got 35 podcasts on my list again i don't listen to all of them it's um i've got my two or three fave i'll check in with every other day whenever they come out um, if I'm feeling it, you know, I'll listen to some, uh, some Wall Street Journal, the journal. If I'm looking for a hate fest, boy, I tell you, I'm on a hate fest rant against the daily oh. Is that New York times podcast. Yeah. Oh my yeah, Lord. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if you look up in a textbook for flawed program, I think <laughs> the daily's written there. Yeah. Uh, I don't, we don't listen. I don't listen to the daily. Uh, I do have the Wall Street Journal's version of that. Um, on on uh, on my list, Potomac Watch, which is another Wall Street Journal, um, podcast, which is you basically some CanCon. Like, yeah, some what, CanCon ones. Would the boys cast count as CanCon? Nah, uh, maybe. Yeah, I I mean that's it's like I don't know what counts as CanCon for, pot like, is. Does the person speaking have to be Canadian? Like, this is the whole thing about these Canadian content regulations. It's like, for songs, it's like, when is something Canadian? If it was written by a Canadian, 
If it was it produced by a Canadian? Is it sung by a Canadian? What if they're married? A Canadian to a can- is a Canadian is a Canadian. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's if the drummer is a Canadian. I think that's the rule. Uh, then it counts. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and then uh, a hockey podcast, um, Spit and Chicklets, which I've mentioned. If we go back far enough, I've mentioned that probably a couple times. Um, but I, I'm finding myself with limited time. I'm getting sparked back to podcasts because they'll have video that accompany it and put that on Instagram and it'll be some funny bit from one of the episodes or something interesting. And then I'll, that will spark me to be like, oh yeah, like I should listen to that episode. Yeah, we um the the back office here at Consumer Choice Radio has been a bit lacking in this department as of late, but uh they're, they're work let's let's crack the whip real quick and there we go. Yeah, you guys better but you better do that now. Better do those videos or you know what's going to happen. You you know what's going to happen if you don't do those videos. You should be in jail. <laughs> there you go. They're on it. Uh yeah. yeah, you're totally right and this is this kind of thing. And look, I'm I I like podcasting. I'm big into it. I have been for a long time. And to see the evolution of it is really interesting because what Joe Rogan does is presumably a podcast, but it's not a podcast technically because there's no RSS feed. I can't listen to it on any app. It's only on Spotify. Um, people, you know, on, on YouTube will technically call their programs a podcast. You can make a feed out of it, but they don't really have a natural feed. It's like people on Instagram who call themselves bloggers even though they just, like, put together YouTube, you know, photos. It's kind of a weird misappropriation, but it's cool. We're not mad about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Putting, there, it, putting out there's the content a lot of comments. is important. So. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of comments about the shenanigans on Instagram. That's probably a whole nother show um, in and of itself. But, uh, yeah, what, what, what's grinding your gears these days? What's going on? We had a couple things happen that, um, good or bad, right? There's, um, I, I think what is top of mind for me and what I've been paying a lot of attention to is the, uh, oh, oh, that's right. Bank runs, baby. Uh, this is a big deal. Maybe this was your bank. Um, I, I did a fresh round and, um, as an American, I can do this. Um, David, you have less choice in this area, but I've been applying to many different banks just for mm-hmm. like personal checking, see what see what the process is like. Um, in yeah. the states, I, we have like I don't know what twenty five hundred banks or something like that. And yeah. what I'm loving are these neo banks. Okay, what is a neo bank? You're gonna have to educate me. So, so a neo bank is essentially a financial services company that has access to a banking license through a community or partner bank. So an example is like Sophie Bank. So they were a fintech company and they had bank accounts. They had savings, you know, accounts, investing. Um, you could buy all kinds of things, they had loans. And they basically were using another bank's license, money transmitter license. Yeah, okay. But they were like the front end. Um, now they've transitioned. They have their own license now, but you have this with a lot of different companies. And um, we had Europe as well, they kind of do this. We had that with PC Financial, President's Choice, the like food brand uh, owned by Loblaws. Um, they 
for quite some time, I think we're piggybacking off of CIBC. They may be on their own now, but it's a similar, similar, uh, similar type of setup. But uh, Yael, I want to I want to quiz you on this. You said there's like some 2,500 banks in the U.S. How many banks? Oh, I was wrong, eh? And federally regulated credit unions? Do you think are in Canada? Ten. Uh, you're a little low. Thirty-four domestic banks. I have no I'm... idea what size. Um, and two federally regulated credit unions. But if you look at that as a, on a per capita basis, that's like way lower than one would expect in comparison to the U.S. U.S. is about 10 times bigger. We don't have uh, the proportionality there. I mean, this is something that Canadians complain about all the time. Because realistically, it's like the big handlers, like five or so. Um, CIBC, TD, Laurentian, um, BMO. RBC. RBC. Yeah, it's like those are the options. And what's funny is I saw on Twitter. And that's kind day, of by I, design, right? Um. I think so. It's uh, I think it's certainly more regulated than the in the U.S. Um, but when I was looking into some of this bank run stuff, generally speaking, the Canadian system is a lot more stable. But if uh, if what I saw on Twitter, I think like the largest shareholder for each of the banks is one of the other banks. So, like, imagine there was a run on CIBC and their largest shareholder is RBC. It would just be, like, a huge wave of, uh-oh. Wow. That's, like... Yeah. It's an interesting thing. And that I, would I know not in, be good. I know in Canada... I mean, obviously, the rules are much more stringent, and I know a lot of uh, Canadian politicos and central bankers have, um, you know, they, they toot their own horns for this. We're like, we didn't have the financial crisis, like, in the U.S., uh, it is true. It's much harder to start a bank, much harder to run a bank. Uh, you're you're much more likely to have to basically camp out in the regulator's office if you want to open a bank. <laughs> uh, but, you know, also like in the States, Canada does not have a reserve ratio requirement. Meaning, if you are a bank, if you are CIBC or any of the big ones, um, we have no promo code, unfortunately. Uh, they're lending out... <laughs> probably a hundred times more than they have in deposits, which is kind of the issue with fractional reserve banking, which uh, more people are learning about and researching and is kind of, kind of the, the core of a lot of this stuff. And especially the central banks and what they require. It's just, um, yeah, tomfoolery. What well, it's, this is going to sound hilarious when I say it. So the boys cast is a, is a podcast of two comedians, one of whom is Canadian. They had Martin Screlly farmer bro on the program. And um, who is now out of prison. <laughs> and what, they actually had a really interesting conversation about this because the way in which he described it is basically you deposit your money in the bank. They lend it out beyond what you have deposited, but you don't get any share of the profits um, at all. He's like, essentially, the banks are run like hedge funds. So, but you don't get it, uh, you get like your half a percent on your checking or 3% max or whatever on your savings account with strings. Um, but you don't get any piece of the the pie in terms of the profits. And I'd, I'd never really thought of it that way. Not that I really want to look for like financial advice from 
Martin Screlly, but it was an interesting kind of analysis of like this is like this is the nature of it, and a lot of people don't really understand that you put a hundred thousand dollars in the bank, they're lending that out mortgages or what have you um, at a rate which is higher than what like at an amount higher than what you put in um, and so yeah, it just creates a and then depository insurance is a whole nother like moral hazard here where the government guarantees deposits up to a certain amount and it's like that's great because it protects depositors but at the same time it gives the banks essentially a free pass because one of the if it's a hundred grand or two hundred and fifty grand like in the US that's just free play money uh from a risk perspective. Absolutely. And I, I um listen to that as well. They're actually both Canadian on Voicecast. Oh, I didn't know. Okay. Small note. Small note, Danny, too. And uh, what is kind of interesting about the last week is that, uh, and, I, you know, there's actually a, a former, um, not guest, but someone that we've talked about a lot. And uh, he went on television and made the case that, you know, essentially the banks have been nationalized in the U.S. <laughs> because the government, the Federal Reserve, they've essentially guaranteed all the deposits of all of these people and we're talking billions and they're going to use the FDIC pool of money which is about 100 billion right so they're going to use about 80 billion of that to pay back their depositors but here's the thing is that 100 billion that's in that fund is supposedly the backstop for the I think it's 10 trillion dollars in customer deposits in the US so if there's any other bank run <laughs> that thing's done and you know this just reminds me of uh, just it really is a, a callback to 2008 and Credit Suisse, uh, which is uh, in, in Europe, in Switzerland. They actually just got their bailout by the central bank. Like this happened this I week. I saw them referred. <laughs> There's going to be a lot more of this, folks. Yeah, I saw them referred to as debit Swiss today. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, uh... and I, this stuff has been really fascinating. I and. Well, the funny thing about it is, what did the bank do that was so risky? Well, it bought government bonds. <laughs> and once the interest yeah. rates shot through the roof, you got all these issues. And uh, look, that's kind of what happens, folks. Um, we've got you know, a lot more interesting stuff uh, that's, that's on the horizon. Love to talk to, uh, about that a lot more. Um, we've got a couple clips to play, though. So you guys stay tuned to Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. Yael Lasoski here. Uh, we're going to give you guys a little bit of a preview clip here. I was invited on a Twitter Spaces um, about uh, cryptocurrency and public policy. Very important for consumer choice. Uh, it's about state-level policy on things uh, particular to Bitcoin. So I wanted to give you guys a little preview, and uh, we'll link to the uh, sort of full episode that you guys can uh, listen to if you're interested. And uh, we'll be back uh, next week with more great content on consumer choice. Take it away. Yeah, I'm Yael. I focus on consumer choice policies, uh, sort of in the States and uh, globally as well. Bitcoin is obviously of a, of a very important note. And there's been so much pressure at the federal level to deal with Bitcoin and generally with crypto. And we have seen a, a kind of 
monopolistic relationship between many centralized coin companies, various lobbying groups. And there's been a lot of oxygen that's taken up in the room by questions about securities and commodities and what should be this and stable coins. And there really isn't any nuts and bolts rules for how Bitcoin could work and how people can access Bitcoin. But we are seeing that a lot at the state level. And that's what kind of pushed me to start researching this and working on it. So there, there are three prime areas that, you know, basically we've outlined of how Bitcoin is so-called regulated. And when I say Bitcoin is regulated, I don't mean Bitcoin, the protocol itself. I only mean the people and the institutions that touch Bitcoin. So we have exchange. This is your, your fiat on and off ramps your money transmitter licenses, KYC, AML rules. Everybody's very familiar with all of that. Uh, second is energy, which we've seen increasingly many more bills, uh, actually very positive about this one. There have been some negative ones in the past, but something that is very active. And then we have taxation. And a lot of the waters are being muddied around this right now. Uh, I would say overall, looking at many of the states, we obviously have the big states like New York, uh, we have states like Illinois or California, where things are a bit more wary. We're not really sure how it's going to go, perhaps in one area, whether it be in hashing or mining, things have been restricted. But I would say generally in many of the other states, things have been fairly open. Many different caveats to add to that. And any of the entrepreneurs in the space who've tried to start businesses or who are actively trying to open bank accounts or keep their bank accounts open. There's all kinds of issues there. Uh, but I'd say I'm generally very hopeful. Uh, we do have some outliers in terms of how bad they are. We've got some actors who are very present in many of these debates that could sway things one way or another. Um, but I do think it's going to take education on the part of BPI. It's going to take some lobbying on the part of uh, groups like ours or many others in the space. And it's going to take a lot of voices of both plebs and entrepreneurs because there are, are many different avenues to take. Uh, it is true. It is not that Bitcoiners have to care about the state, but the state definitely cares about Bitcoin. Uh, we just want to be sure to shape it in the right way. So hopefully that's a good intro. That was awesome. Thank you so much. And speaking of intros, I want to go ahead and introduce everybody else on this panel. Uh, you know what? Let's start with Dan. We'll go to Sam and then we'll end with Kyle. If you guys just want to... Uh, you know, tell us your name, a little bit about yourself, about your work, um, maybe some of the ways that you all interact with uh, some of the pieces on this at a, at a state level. Thanks, Grant. Uh, thanks, everybody, for having me today. Um, pleasure to be here. Um, I'm Dan Spooler, a uh, longtime Bitcoiner. I'm, I'm from North Carolina. I'm in between North Carolina and Washington, D.C. these days, but I got my start actually back in 2012, late 2012, uh, one of the earlier uh, supporters and attendants at the Triangle Bitcoin Meetup Group in Raleigh, and uh, it was a hobby. At my day job, I worked for the state government, primarily the Commerce Department and Banking Commissioner's Office. Um, but uh, we put on a series of Bitcoin conferences in Raleigh in 2014, called it Cryptolana, which was a you know, portmanteau of cryptocurrency and Carolina. That's before the term, uh, I guess, crypto became kind of a tinged word. Um, but it was a Bitcoin conference. We did another one in Charlotte a year later. And uh, I really started to get more interested in it professionally. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, I moved up to Washington, D.C. in 2016 to build out a trade association, the Digital Chamber. I did that for four years, uh, second hire there with Jason Brett and Perianne. 
I migrated over to the Blockchain Association where I'm at now, um, also in DC. Uh, and uh, anyway, friend of the Bitcoin Magazine, long time you know, contacts with David Bailey. He came to my first Bitcoin conference way back when it was uh, Why Bitcoin Magazine. And um, it's, it's, it's been a long time, but I think there's been a lot of progress made over the last, what, 10 years now. But we still have a lot of work to do, and hopefully we'll be able to share some ideas and best practices today. Yeah, but why Bitcoin days are crazy. Uh, <laughs> I still have a copy. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, we still got copies of those in the, um, you know, is that Bitcoin mag? Uh, they're the earliest, you know, copies in the office. And yeah, crazy to see one, how far things have come. And two, uh, on the flip side, how many things have actually in some ways stayed the same, you know, even some of the talking points, like some of the, the terms or phrases that people use, um, are almost exactly the same. It's kind of, kind of remarkable. I, I think sometimes things can uh, feel like they move so quickly in the space. And then on the other hand, you look back, you know, a decade ago and, and, um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to see some things have stayed very much the same, but, uh, I want to kick it over to Sam. Uh, what's up, everybody? Um, my name is Sam Callahan. I'm the lead analyst at Swan Bitcoin. And um, I've been there for uh, about two years now. And, you know, it's it's just been a roller coaster uh, trying to navigate the regulatory environment as a Bitcoin startup. Um, it's just something that we have to deal with as an industry. And Swan hasn't been immune to that. Um, we've, we've been debanked by Citibank recently, uh, just made, uh, made the wall street journal. Um, Corey kind of explained how not only was Swan debanked from Citibank without any kind of notification, but also his personal bank account was debanked as well without any notification or reasoning. Um, and so we, we deal with this all the time and we've also recently, um, you know, our custodial partner lost the money transmitter license in Texas and we've lost uh, access to customers in South Dakota just because of these changes in, in regulations at the state level. And um, we've really been able to navigate those challenges well. And that's a testament to our leadership and our, our partners that we, we partner with, um, which is why we haven't run into a lot of problems. But it, it's a challenging environment for any kind of business um, in Bitcoin, because there's a lot of frictional costs of determining how or even whether like certain obligations apply combined with ongoing uh, compliance costs. And um, it can just be a barrier of entry for, to bootstrap these Bitcoin companies uh, with these compliance costs. And they change on us all the time. And so it, it's difficult. Um, but, you know, it's, like I said, it's a testament to our leadership, like being on the ball with this stuff. And we've, we try to get more involved with lobbying groups in Washington, D.C. Uh, to advocate for our industry. And so, uh, yeah, happy to be here. Awesome. Hey, I'm, uh, yeah, sorry, Grant. You're good. You're good. I was just <laughs> going to say, yeah, we'll, we'll touch on the money transfer license stuff even more. Uh, so we'll kick that over to you again, Sam, in a moment. But, uh, yeah, Kyle, go for it. Hey, guys, thanks for having me. Uh, Kyle Schnapps, I'm Director of Public Policy at Foundry. Um, Foundry is a, a company based in Western New York that um, we have uh, one of the larger uh, mining pools, mostly focusing in North America, and we're also miners and have a, a whole bunch of different business streams that focus on empowering decentralized infrastructure that so that places that are 
um, like Rochester that have long been uh, overlooked and underserved can now, you know, build businesses and bring jobs to their communities through this new decentralized economy that we're all trying to build. Um, also, uh, a co-founder of BTC Vets, which is an organization that uh, that is comprised of um, veterans, uh, you know, U.S. military veterans, uh, former intelligence folks, uh, former foreign service officers from State Department, first responders across the nation who all want to advocate for Bitcoin um, in D.C. Uh, and we're hoping that this group of people will be listened to in a different way than, you know, than folks who don't have that background, because we can speak to national security and the importance of, of Bitcoin and proof of work uh, in that framing. Uh, that being said, work work uh, spent the first uh, year and a half of my life in this industry uh, fighting the Bitcoin moratorium in New York, and uh, have worked closely with with Dan and and. Uh, recently bonded with with Sam and Wyoming over our mutual skepticism over World Bank so over the World Bank so I'm uh, happy to be here yeah skepticism of the World Bank I think that's gonna that's gonna play well uh, you know on on, uh, on this space but maybe a space for another time um, look we're uh, we're 15 minutes in this space we've got you know a behemoth of uh, of a topic topic to get through i'll say this right if you've got uh you know if you can have twitter open on your phone or the space open on your phone um you'd like to you know click on the article link they're going to follow this pretty linearly it might be helpful for you all to uh you know follow along visually if you got your computer in front of you or you got your phone in front of you um and you'd like to just kind of keep tabs that way uh you know the bolded phrases on the article will be pretty helpful um just as a rundown of what we're going to cover here um and, and yale uh you know gave a pretty great overview um we're going to start with money transmitter licenses you know talk about those in states uh look might seem kind of boring on its face um but you know to sam's point this is like something that uh so many bitcoin startups have to deal with um and many of them uh are literally like unable uh, to transact in certain states because of some of these owners requirements, right? So um, we'll go from uh, MTLs, uh, we'll talk about a couple of the different actors in the space, you know, Conference of State Bank Supervisors, the Uniform Law Commission, you might've heard of them recently because of this bill that was you know, initially passed in South Dakota, um, you know, attempting to uh, classify central bank digital currencies as money and uh, say Bitcoin is not money, you know, we'll touch on that uh, here because I think there's been a lot of FUD that's been spread about um, that bill, which, by the way, did get vetoed, you know, by the governor of South Dakota, but uh, would definitely like to clarify some things there. We're going to talk about regulatory sandboxes, no action letters. Uh, we're going to get into proof of work and the energy debate on a state by state level because, um, you know, it's it's uh, uh, past the point of heating up. Uh, all those battles are, are here. And, and Kyle alluded to one of the big battles you know, that we faced in, in uh, New York get into taxation, talk about some, you know, friends and enemies, and then we'll wrap up. So the way I'm going to approach this is, is this, because there's so many topics, um, I'm going to just, you know, lay the groundwork for each of these, throw it over to, to Yale and he can, uh, you know, give an overview, give his kind of basic take here. And then what I'd love from, you know, Dan, Sam, Kyle, from you all is like, uh, 
if you can add some color from, you know, your experience with your companies, your organizations, um, don't feel the need to like comment on all of these, right? If they don't specifically uh, apply to you or, or, you know, you still have much to say, that's totally fine. But I think that this space can offer a cool mix of um, the policy wonk side of things. And then also the, the actual like business side of things, like how this affects um, small businesses, startups, and then larger organizations uh, that are, you know, transacting with, with Bitcoin specifically. Um, so yeah, uh, let's start with money transmitter licenses. Um, again, uh, we'll use, you know, MTL for short, but you know, these MTLs, uh, are state by state. Um, they determine, uh, depending on, you know, if a state, uh, says that like transacting with Bitcoin in a certain way requires a money transmitter license, right? This could be something that, uh, a company, um, has to apply for in every single state, um, that they do business in. So, Yale, do you want to give us, you know, just an overview of these money transmitter licenses, like why they're so important? And then uh, maybe we can fill in with, you know, color on how they affect like specific Bitcoin businesses in the space. Yeah, absolutely. And there's going to be a lot more education on these licenses with uh, <laughs> specifically all the, the bank runs and failures and impending doom uh, that we have. So there's going to be a lot of talk about different bank licenses and, and all the rest. So for the money transmitter license, it's essentially a state right to legally offer any kind of services uh, to residents in a state that has to do with transmitting money. Now, there are different ways that this is defined in some areas. They've really tried to unify the law. It's going to depend on your state. All right, we got plenty more to come uh, from this clip. Hope you guys uh, enjoy that so far. Kind of fun to do a Twitter space and the radio. Uh, so stay tuned to Consumer Choice Radio, and we'll play the uh, last part of this coming up. All right, guys, welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. We're playing a clip here from a Twitter space on uh, state-level policies and um, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin specifically. <laughs> plenty of me talking, but we get into the nitty-gritty about money transmission licenses uh, taxation, mining, all the interesting things. So if you guys like it, keep tuning in. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Consumer Choice Radio. But this is your primary vehicle for your KYC, Know Your Customer data collection. It's a way for the state to keep tabs on who is permitting money transmission, so-called, in its state. And it's a way that the state can say, look, we're here to protect you, residents, and we will not allow any of these so-called financial firms or brokers to deal with our residents if they don't have this license. Now, there are exceptions. Montana, it shines bright in the sky, big sky country. Uh, they do not have a money transmission license. You've probably seen a lot of different institutions that are based there for that reason. Uh, there are all kinds of different issues that have come up recently. Uh, as was mentioned, South Dakota and Texas by losing a money transmitter license, you know, it's it's a very fiat type thing. And it's through the government. However, it means that you, if you're trying to DCA, if you're trying to purchase your, your weekly stock of uh, SATs, you weren't able to because the custodian lost that right. And a lot of the, a lot of times there's not a very clear process for trying to understand that. It's a lot of backroom deals. It's a lot of whatever the banking supervisor wants. Um, so I would just love some color more on the backroom deals and how that's working. 
And the only uh, other practical thing I'd introduce is that, you know, we have written a model policy and we are working with state policymakers to figure out a way to actually unify this and to make it more portable. So the idea we kind of came up with was this idea of reciprocity. If you've gone through the process, if you've shown that you're liquid, if you've shown that you have all of this information in one state, you should be able to have your license accepted in others. They've done this with occupational licensing in places like Arizona, which has been very successful, and they're doing it more and more. We'd love to see it applied to this, whether it be in the standard money transmitter license or specific for so-called digital asset firms. Um, so yeah, that, that's uh, the two cents, and I, I really look forward to some of the, the practical experience that some of the folks here have had. And I have, um, I just want to maybe kick something off here. I, I'm, I want to start off by saying I'm a longtime foe of the New York State Bit License uh, for a variety of reasons. But it's for personally for me, it started off when Ben Lasky introduced that darn thing in July of 2014. Uh, it was three weeks before that conference I had mentioned earlier that I was doing. And the bank that we were using uh, suddenly just debanked us uh, you know, out of the blue. And, um, it, and this was a North Carolina bank. Well, we got to the conference. And, you know, met a lot of great folks, but I went back to my job. And again, that was in the state government, the Commerce Department, which oversees in, in the budget of the, the North Carolina Banking Commissioner's Office. I did a little research. Come to find out that this was by far, far more strict than it ever needs, needed to be. And the fear was this was going to have tentacles in other states. And you know, here we are 10 years later, and we're, we're, you know, we're seeing the same. It's, it's continued to rear its ugly head. And what we decided to do was just through some personal connections at the time. And my then girl, my then girlfriend, my now wife, was a legislative assistant for the uh, state chairman uh, house banking committee in the state legislature. I got wind that the state was in the process of updating their money transmitters laws, which hadn't been updated since 1991. And they were going to begin adding some bit license like provisions to the North Carolina money transmitter law. And I said, all right, well, very few people probably had it. Certainly nobody in the legislature at that time had any inkling of what Bitcoin was. So I went down there and just started talking to people, um, some state senators, uh, some state house reps, you know, just really uh, on my own time. And over the course of the, in the next two years, we really worked to craft and bake in some exemptions in what had become House Bill 289 that became later became law. Um, and what it did was it updated the improved version of it through the work that we did. Me and several other stakeholders, we improved the state's law, existing laws to include a defined virtual currency term and clarifying, which clarified uh, which use of virtual currencies would trigger licensure under the act. So what we were able to do was we were able to ensure that virtual currency miners, Bitcoin miners, as we like to say, and blockchain software protocols, including smart contract platforms, uh, colored coins, which is a dated term for people that have been around long enough to know what that is, uh, multi-stick software, non-hosted, non-custodial wallets. We made sure that all of those were baked into the lot that would not require a license. Uh, it wasn't perfect. But and it, again, it took about two and a half years for this thing to actually get passed in the law and to sign. But the result was a more business friendly approach that invited companies that were seeking to use Bitcoin or virtual currencies, as this is codified, um, to bring them to North Carolina to do business. And what New York State did was quite the opposite. And I fear now that that's what's happening in uh, New Jersey, which is actually even more harsh than the bit license, and then in Illinois. 
And um, I know Sam and, and you know, you know, you're specializing in a lot of these state-by-state state issues, but just from a historical standpoint, you know, this bit license is the gift that keeps on giving. And it's not the kind of gift you want to receive. Um, I, I, I'm hopeful though, that, and again, this is going to be a state issue. This is not the federal side can't solve all the problems. And um, I know that was a little long-winded, but I just, I think it's important for everybody to know that this is a, been in the process for a while. And I think now that the industry has gotten so much more attention and credibility and skill, scope over the last, you know, nine, 10 years, um, the forces that be are going to even become more uh, uh, strict. And as an industry, that's why we need to have the best and the brightest helping craft these policies. Dan, as a fellow Carolina boy, I thank you for your service. <laughs> no problem. I also despise the bit license and to the title of this room, you know, I think states can just kill themselves from Bitcoin. And I think the bit license proves that. I know Kyle's worked a lot in New York. Um, and I have to say Ben Lasky, I mean, he made that bit license and then he just went over to the private sector afterwards to teach people <laughs> how to work around the bit license. I mean, it's I like crony capitalism. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. Um, but you know, I think it speaks to from Swan's perspective, how quickly these things can turn uh, without much notification as well. So in terms of the Texas news, I mean, basically it became um, more stringent, the requirements to obtain an uh, MTL license uh, after FTX collapse. After FTX collapsed, suddenly the uh, Department of Banking in Texas, they wanted to review every single one in the industry and then became stricter on who could uh, receive these MTLs. And that's when our custodial partner um, received a temporary um, uh, kind of suspension of their license. And so then we were kind of stuck because we're like, okay, we have to figure out a new custodial partner. But we had no uh, notification. This was just done from the top down. And it was very opaque in terms of what requirements were needed. And so right now, like we're in this spot where like, okay, well, we don't want to just willy-nilly partner up with some random custodial uh, custodian partner just because they have a license we want to build long-term relationships with the right partners and so even though you know it might be painful in the short term for some of our clients specifically in texas who we want to serve who we have been serving diligently for years um they have to wait to kind of access our services now until we find the the long-term partnerships that are right for us so that's just like an example of some of the hurdles that bitcoin companies have to go through at a state-by-state level I think I'll just just add from the, the the New York bid license point of view, just like zooming out a little bit of, of what the actual effect is, or one of the actual effects is, is that, you know, you, you basically ended up with, you know, this process whereby it costs hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, to get to obtain a bid license. It takes years of, of going through the application process. And so you end up basically grandfathering in a few, you know, huge companies that are able to obtain this, the, a bit license and it screws over the little guy that, or the, the medium sized business over that owner that maybe wants to get involved in, in Bitcoin in some way, but now is excluded. And I think that's, that's really important. It's something we try to convey to policymakers, you know, through on the energy side of things, when we're fighting the moratorium bill which is, you know, New York may try to claim that it's it's leading the way, but in fact, it's it's kind of grandfathering in 
um, a few companies, and then it is preventing new businesses and new jobs from from coming to the state. And I think that's one of the the most pernicious aspects of the bit license is that it it creates this this uh, <laughs> this kind of pseudo security system whereby if you have a bit license, somehow you are protected, but it then prevents any other folks from coming in and trying to get involved in the space. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one, one, of my core, one of my core issues with, uh, you know, the New Jersey bill that, that's being worked on is, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't really, doesn't really stop the next FTX, right? And I think that's what, that's what a lot of these uh, licenses are, are trying to do, right? They're trying to, you know, protect consumers. They're trying to make sure that uh, all these companies have, um, you know, ha- have everything in place, essentially, that, you know, consumers can't just be uh, rugged, you know, on a on moment's notice. And I think in their pursuit to do that, they, you know, have all of these unintended consequences that we're talking about or potentially intended, right, by driving business competition out of their states. And then uh, the reality is, like, the, the really bad things that they're trying to stop, I, I, I don't know if these... Uh, licenses necessarily like have the power um, to to protect as much as as uh, you know these politicians would like to think. So that that's really what what I'll say on here. Dan, did you have more to add? Well, I think it was Kyle's point was that, you know it, based on just the sheer costs, the requirements for the licensures, the surety bonds, the, the you name it, and then the legal fees it all but guarantees a moat around a lot of the incumbent players that had a leg up uh, from the get-go. And it, it's not just exchanges either. I mean, we're talking about, you can all the way down to Bitcoin ATMs, all the way up to uh, to anyone that deals with uh, something that would require a money transmitter license. And ultimately, they'll, they'll, these states, the ones that, the usual suspects, I mean, I'll bring up New Jersey again and Illinois, but it's gonna create uh, an exodus of of talent and to the to the benefit of the states that are fairly open in embracing this and we've seen the states that have embraced this technology um, not just mtls but you know variety of this energy you mentioned earlier and it's going to continue to almost divide the country into two different sections and so it's fascinating to see this happen though and i think in the long run though uh, these states are going to have to wake up otherwise they're going to have a very very large talent exodus yeah, if you're if you're just joining us, um, you know, look at the title of the space. Can states kill Bitcoin in the U.S. right now? You know, banks are are collapsing. Uh, Bitcoin companies are effectively being you know debanked in, in more ways than one. Uh, and so there seems like there's this really large, um, you know, uh, attack vector on the federal level. Um, and so uh, the ultimate purpose of the space is to show that. Um, the attack vectors exist on on so many different levels, and there are many attack vectors on the on the state level, uh, and some of them are really just unsexy, like money transmitter licenses. We just talked about these for fifteen minutes. Um, this isn't like you know a thing that that's going to get people all riled up necessarily. Um, you know, maybe it will some bitcoiners, but the reality is like a lot a lot of this stuff is is. Uh, you know, redlining a, a bill and, and changing a few words, um, you know, have doing the dirty work, you know, Dan, Kyle, Sam, people like you talking, you know, with, with legislators in a specific state and explaining to them, you know, how this is going to affect people, um, you know. Well, there you go. A little bit of a, 
little bit of a preview. If you want to listen to the entire interview, we'll uh, go ahead and clip that in our show notes. You can go to consumerchoiceradio.com if you guys would like to listen to the full thing. Figure we'd give you guys a little preview on the radio. It's going to be an important uh, important conversation. There's so much that's happening with the bank runs, uh, with banking regulation, bailouts, and a lot of it has to do with uh, some banks that did offer accounts to cryptocurrency companies, uh, to Bitcoin brokerages and the like. So this stuff is not going away. And for consumer choice, it's obviously very important to focus on this stuff, you know, allowing an entirely new financial system to arise from the ashes. Yay! It gives us a little bit of things to talk about. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Uh, please continue tuning in uh, every single week here on Saga 960 AM and on Coastal Carolina Network and the podcast version. Hope you guys do enjoy that. And um, yeah, let's uh, let's get together the, the next time. David will be back. Um, he's dealing with some house issues, which I'm sure we'll hear about in uh, the next time we come together. So thank you guys so much. Stay tuned to Consumer Choice.